live in a society that tells our boys that no means try harder, right? right? That when a girl or woman tells them no, that they need to try harder, right? That they need to step up the game. And that's not the world we want to create. Hey, Changemaker, my name is Jesse Coleman, and you're listening to Miking Change, a podcast that puts a microphone to the stories that matter. Today, I'm joined by Josue Arwages, the Director of Youth Initiatives for A Call to Men, a nonprofit that works to educate men and boys all over the world on healthy, respectful manhood. Josue is responsible for a program called Youth Act, a group of young leaders that are actively committed to promoting healthy masculinity, healthy relationships, preventing gender-based violence, and creating a better world for all. That includes women, girls, boys, trans, LGBTQ, and non-binary people. He partners with communities to advance the work of engaging youth leaders in violence prevention efforts. Hi, host Sway. How's it going today? Doing well. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely. You work for an organization called The Call to Men. Um, tell me what you guys do there. So I'm the director of youth initiatives at A Call to Men, and we are a uh, national organization that really has the focus on having these conversations with male-identified folks around healthy manhood, healthy masculinity, and moving us, right, as male-identified people to live uh, in our most authentic way, which to us, that means that we have to center the voices and the experience and the safety of women and girls and those that reside in the margins of the margins. Because um, we do believe, you know, that we want to see a world where men and boys are loving and respectful and that women, girls, and all those that reside in the margins of the, mar- uh, the margins are valued and safe. And, and you guys coined a term called uh, a man box. What's that? Yeah, the man box. So that's um, the way we talk about the man box really is this idea, really right, this creation of these really rigid notions of masculinity, right? Of manhood, like how men are taught to navigate the world, how men are taught to be a man, right? And like even asking the question, well, what does that even mean to be a man, right? And so we believe that the man box are these really rigid notions that, you know, in a way hinder us from being our full authentic selves, from being able to experience the full spectrum of the human experience, right, and, and human emotion. And so the man box is really uh, a construct, right, and that holds men hostage in terms of, like, you know, the teachings that you yourself have probably had from your own uh, parents or even, like, men in your life, right, that tell us not to show emotion, that tell us to man up, that tell us to, you know, really perform masculinity um, that we as a society, right, have said, this is how men show up in the world, right? And this is the role that men play, right? That you have to be a protector, that you have to be a provider, that you have to be strong, that you can't show weakness, right? So all these fall under the man box. 
And so our work is really to get men to break outside of that man box and live a little bit more authentically. Yeah, I recently had, uh, my wife and I had our, our car was stolen. And uh, I have done a lot of my own work trying to like figure out how do I get outside that, that man box? Like, how do I um, break free? And I've, you know, several times in my life, um, gone in and really evaluated that. I, I wrote my senior thesis on um, the ma- masculine identity and the ability to express vulnerability and how vulnerability was a means to connection. And um, But this car got stolen and uh, suddenly I am back to like that protector like identity where I feel completely emasculated. Like I didn't, um, I didn't do enough to keep our things and our uh, property safe. And so I, I find it interesting um, that no matter how much you do this work, it seems to continue to come back into my life. And it's a constant thing. How do you navigate that? Yeah, and I hear you on that experience, right? Um, I think really what I've learned in my journey is that it's not black and white, right? Um, that it's not just like you're, you're toxic, right? Or you, what folks use, right? Toxic masculinity or that you're not toxic. And I think really it's about understanding the different complexities and the fact that many things can be true at once. Right. So the way that I've come to understand it and the way that a call to men frames it, right, that this is not uh, an indictment on manhood. It's an invitation for men to the table, right, to really uh, let's unpack. Let's peel back those layers, right, like an onion. Let's peel back those layers of what we think, you know, we're supposed to be playing in our role as men, right, versus what we as a society have been taught, right? And we call that the collective socialization of manhood, right? That there's these uh, unspoken rules and, and, and uh, these rigid notions, right, of how we show up. And so for me, it's really understanding, you know, that there's absolutely beautiful things about being men, right? But there's also some really twisted stuff, <laughs> right, that we've been taught, um, yeah. that we uphold, um, and not to say that, you know, when I say like that, you have to be strong, that you have to be a protector and a provider, um, not saying that those are bad things about, you know, um, that anybody can, can embody, right. And carry, not just men. Um, because I think at the end of the day, we all do want to protect and provide for our loved ones, right. Or for our family or for our community. But it's really like thinking a little bit more critically that like, well, am I protecting and am I providing at the expense of someone else, right? And when I say that, we think to, you know, when when the dad tells um, his son, you know, like, I'm going away for this trip. And so, you know, you, you look after things because you're the man of the house now, right? Um, and so those kind of teachings, mm-hmm. you know, that that is responsibility in a way. But when you're saying that, you have to realize that you're doing it at the expense of, the women, right? Expense of the mom. 
that she's not in charge of the house while the 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 dad's away, right? Or that she, she he must be the man of the house because she must need a man in the house, right? And so we had to really think about like, you know, what c- can be looked at as a beautiful moment between a dad and a son, but it's happening at the expense of the mom, right? And so I think mm-hmm. uh, in doing our own work, you know, to, to promote healthy manhood, we really had to think about the things that we say, um, the way that we behave, because so much of this, we're just operating on uh, remote control, right? We're just doing mm-hmm. and saying what we think is expected of us as men, right? Um, and so I think that those complexities, right, um, we have to really understand that and define manhood or masculinity as something that is just living more authentically, right, um, and not a performance. Because it, it is performance, right? Like, I can tell you I still walk into a room that can be very hyper-masculine, and my body kind of, like, puffs up a little bit, right? Because I know, like, I need to navigate the room that maybe when I was younger and bullied, it was for reasons of safety, but then our body remembers that, right? Our body remembers that and continues to act in that same way. And so, you know, I've had to take in mm-hmm. moments of pause. I'm like, oh, what's that about? Like, what, what's, what's going on there, right? Because it's so uh, deeply rooted, right? And even as someone who does this work, you know, every day, 24-7, I have my moments where I'm like, oh, what was that about? Like, why did you just do that, right? Or why are you, why are you responding in this way, right? Because, yeah, we live in a patriarchal society, and though I may not uphold uh, patriarchy um, or sexism or misogyny in certain spaces, it's still upholding me, right? Because as a male-identified male-presenting person, um, cisgendered male. I know that it's upholding me, right? And so I have to recognize that. Can you give us a definition of patriarchy? We hear that word a lot, and I'm not sure it's like exactly clear what it is and how far-reaching it really is, too. Yeah, it's living in a male-dominated society, right? Uh, A society where systems and structures uphold, in particular cisgendered, uh, male-identified folks, right? So you walk into a room and I know that my voice is going to be heard differently. I know that folks are going to respond to me differently than they would if it was uh, a woman or a girl or somebody that resides in the margins, right? They're not going to have that same privilege uh, or access or even given the time, right? So, and patriarchy really is about this, this system again, that I say, like, we may be working really hard to dismantle it and not uphold it, but it still upholds us, right? As men, it upholds us. And Mm. even though we're doing the work to promote healthy manhood, we need to recognize that because that's the only way that we're going to be able to dismantle um, this patriarchy system, right? And so that we all are really on the same page about promoting gender equity. And Let's talk a little bit about your own journey with the man box, if you're okay with it. And yeah, absolutely. How how has that relationship evolved over time? Uh, so I'll tell you this, right? As someone who 
uh, was born and raised in Southern California and comes from a family with, you know, I have a lot of uncles. I have my dad, my grandfather, uh, my brother. And so I definitely grew up in a very sexist environment, right? With the way that I was told as a, a boy, right, that I needed to behave of things that I told I could do or could not do, right? And that I was giving more access to like uh, responsibility or given more access to, you know, quote unquote freedom, right? Freedom to like go places and do things um, and, and, you know, take certain uh, positions and titles. Um, that is something that, you know, when I started my work at A Call to Men, I realized how much of this was just so embedded in me um, and how much of it had uh, prevented me from thriving, right? Uh, once I started my work at A Call to Men, I also started my own healing journey, which I've been in for, you know, over three years now. And a lot of that journey has been, you know, that as men and boys, when we're told to, you know, uh, man up, toughen up, you know, suck it up, not cry, you realize that those things are like armor, right? Like you put on these like armors and they provide a false sense of safety um, for a minute. And then what happens is that we hold on to that armor and it just hardens, right? It hardens and then it just becomes part of us. And so my own journey has been, well, how do I peel that armor off, right? Because there are things that maybe helped me survive at some point, right? Especially as, you know, in my teenage years, I came out as queer too, right? So even though I was navigating the world now as a queer identified individual, I also saw that my masculinity was constantly like challenged or invalidated um, or that I was just invalidated as a person, right? Like queer people should not exist. And that's a message that, you know, is you know a, a, an actual reality for for a lot of queer folks in this world it's like you're constantly living in a state in these systems that tell you you should not exist you don't belong here right so what that armor did um again might have provided some safety but now it's just like well i don't need it to survive anymore because i want to thrive right and so once i started doing that work it just goes in line with doing this work with other men, right? And why I see such a connection um, and need for other men to do their own healing work, right? Because I think when I when I say or when I hear healthy manhood, really I think it's a it's a journey of healing, right? That we as men have so much healing to do, right? As individuals, as a group. Um, as brothers, you know, as, as, a, as a society, we have a lot of healing to do, right? Um, and I think that's why I'm able to do this work because, you you know, we definitely go into a lot of hyper-masculine spaces and you definitely get a lot of pushback and that we're uh, demasculating men and that we're, you know, switching it all up and why can't we just be like how we were taught, you know? And so... And a lot of that has to do is because we are so deeply wounded that we see someone telling us to live authentically as a threat, right? When it's really, I'm asking you to heal and I'm asking you to heal with me. Um, so, you know, th this work has definitely helped me in that process. And 
in that and also in this i i think to like my dad right and i think to like my my grandfather um and those some of the things that they did really hurt me and were very problematic i still look back to them with with empathy right because i think what was the armor that they were wearing that they were probably never given the chance to take off right What's those pieces of armor that yeah. they've never been able to shed off that they still carry? Um, so I think that's one of the most beautiful things actually about this journey for me is being able to look to to the men in my life, but also just men in in my community um, and you know look look at them for accountability, but also um, with love, right? That I'm still holding out love for them, right? Because I know there's hope for men, and I know there's hope for men if they start healing. Are there any like moments in your childhood that stand up that was like a clear message of of the man box of like that you would be willing to share? You you mean like how did I experience the man box growing up? Well, I mean like for me there was one one moment that really stood out and I was I was at a f- friend's funeral. I was like 15 at the time and mm-hmm. Um, I was really mourning this friend and I felt like I couldn't cry. Like mm. the whole, the whole funeral, um, instead of like doing the healthy thing and, and be in mourning for the person I, I lost that I loved, uh, the whole time I was just focused on biting my upper lip and not letting the tears flow. Mm. And, um, I was lucky enough to, to come to the car and mention this to, to my father and he's like, cry, it's okay to cry. And then I just let it all out and bawled. But that for me was like a very defining moment of um, like, despite having that, that male role model that said it's okay to cry. Like I'm still in a, a society surrounded by messaging that tells me otherwise. Um, and so I'm curious for you in, in your experience growing up in, you know, Southern California, like, were there any moments like that, that really shaped your, um, your journey with, with manhood? Yeah. I mean, I think back to, you know, my relationship with my grandfather, right. Um, he was very tall. Um, he was very, you know, what they would call rugged um you know had uh come out here with my parents you know my parents and my family are from mexico from guadalajara right so when they migrated here um and we were born my grandfather was you know in my life a lot when we were little right because he did some of the caretaking for me when my parents were both at work um so i I do uh cherish my relationship my grandfather a lot but he was also very you know, very, um, and, and I'll quote this because when we say like traditional, it's just like, well, what do we mean when we say that, right? When we're like, but my 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 uh, my dad or my my grandfather was traditional, right? But really, it's what they were stuck in the the man box, right? And so a lot of the teachings that my grandfather gave me was about, you know, like I'm not supposed to play um, with certain things or even hang out um with my my tias my aunts in the kitchen because he would tell me it's like in his words right like es cosa de viejas which is like that's women's work 
essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And so I remember um, those constant teachings from him and being really conflicted, right? Because he would show me other caring and nurturing things um, in other ways, right? When he would take me places or um, he would take me to, you know, to work with him or show me how to do some uh, gardening work and stuff like that. But then he had these moments where he was very clear that I was not allowed there, right? Or that I was not supposed to do that. Um, so that that really shaped for me for a while, right? Like um, to really be my authentic self and be okay with saying like, but I want to dance or I want to be in the kitchen, you know, like chatting it up and cooking with my aunts, you know, like I wanted to do that. Like I found joy in those things. And, um, you know, it was clear from his teachings that that was not something that I should be comfortable with, right? Um, so that really shaped that part of the, um, you know, those unhealthy teachings of manhood. And and then I do remember also a moment with my younger brother that when I first, he was one of the first people that actually, you know, came out to, and he immediately um, called me back and said, uh, no matter what, you're still my brother and I love you, right? And this was like the late 90s. And so um, my brother, you know, uh, was really, uh, you know, involved in some of the the um, gang culture in Southern California growing up. And so he also, you know, had this very hyper-masculine uh, way of navigating the world. So for him to have done that and shown that kind of like nurture and that moment of uh, of caring um, really marked me, right? It's something that I still remember wow. that he was, you know, he didn't have to do that. It was not something that I expected from him, but it is something that marked mm -hmm. me like, because uh, it, was, it was a moment of vulnerability, right? We had a very intimate, yeah. vulnerable moment, right? And I'm very also intentional about using the word intimate, right? Because I think as men, when we say like intimate, you know, automatically we relate it to sex, right? But intimacy is really about uh, sharing of yourself with somebody. Um, in this, you know, in this case, other men, right? Sharing of ourselves and saying, hey, I see you, you're safe with me and I'm holding on to what you're sharing, right? And so, yeah, that was a very intimate moment that, um, you know, till this day, when I'm telling you this right now, it kind of like gives me goosebumps, you know, cause it was not something that I really got to experience back then, right? Um, it's something that I experience a lot yeah. more often now, but that moment in time, you know, I was like uh, 18 or something like that. So it was a very significant moment for me. What a gift. Absolutely, what yeah. What a gift. Do you, are you still in relationship with your brother? Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, you, we, we all grew up, there's four of us, me, my younger brother and my two sisters. Right. Um, and we kind of grew up, did our own thing, um, hit, hit some rough patches, right. In our relationships. But, you know, again, because I started my healing journey, I've been able to also, um, see my own relationships with them heal as well right and so uh i'm glad that you know we still have a very strong connection and that we have each other in our life so so you know 
um, how, how does your work, how does the work with occultament interact with um, all the different isms? Like starting, I mean, it's, it's pretty clear to me uh, what, how it interact with sexism, but what about racism? What about um, heterosexism? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of our core beliefs at Occulted Men is really that nothing happens in isolation, right? That everything is connected, everything is uh, impacts and causes some sort of relation with the other, right? And so when we do our work, uh, you know, yes, our entry point to the conversations is around healthy manhood, right? defining, you know, what is, what is a man, right? Like, what are, what are the expectations of being a man? And we always are very intentional uh, about bringing an intersectional lens, right? Intersectional uh, uh, kind of crossroads, right? For different identities that we all come from different experience, we all come from different environments, right? And, you know, as you know, intersectionality uh, was uh, coined uh, by Kimberly Crenshaw, right? That really, when we're talking about the different identities that we carry, that it does have uh, a diff, it, ma- it makes a difference, right? In what we're impacted by and what systems operate to to oppress us, right? So, for example, I know that as a queer brown man that I can experience and have experienced marginalization, right? Um, That I have experienced racism, that I have experienced discrimination. But I also know that, you know, as a cisgendered uh, malidentified individual, I still carry privilege. I still carry clout in certain spaces, right? And so it's really, just especially when we're talking about um, sexism and, and racism, these are you know operating together, right? Um, the way that I can explain it is you know we think of let's you know we think of this hierarchy structure, right? So we have um, let's say men of color, right? Black Indigenous men of color experience uh, racism at the hands of white men, right? And women of color can experience sexism at the hands of men of color, right? Um, Then they also are experiencing racism at the hands of white women, right? And so women of color, Black, Indigenous women, right, are experiencing both racism and sexism at the hands of white men, right? And so what what happens with that is that it creates a society where essentially women of color, black women, indigenous women are erased, right? They're not valued, they're not safe. And so we are very intentional. I'm like, yes, there's a relationship to us as men as a whole, really, right? But we have to think differently as men of color. What is my role in the erasure or um, in causing women of color to not be seen, to not be heard, to not be honored, right? Because there is a role that I play for sure. Right. And so this is stuff that we we teach. Right. Because, you know, we could have this conversation about healthy manhood just across the board for all men. But we have to also acknowledge that there's very um, important factors that, you know, 
apply differently to black men, to indigenous men, right? To men of color in their own risk, their own role and responsibility to end all the violence against women and girls, right? Um, it's uh, it's like saying, uh, you know, actually uh, one of my mentors and co-founders for Called Cement, Ted Bunch, he explained it this way one time that made sense to me. And he said, um, you know, the, the, the easy pass that you have in your car so that you can take those tall roads um, or, to, you know, have access to those lanes. And so it's like, you know, as men of color, as black men, as indigenous men, um, we want that easy pass, right? Um, to have the same access to the lane as white men, right? And then we think like, well, women and women of color, you know, black indigenous women, they have, they don't even have a car, right? And so we have to think about when we're asking for, uh, you know, gender equity, when we're asking for uh, equality, when we're asking for for justice, right, around gender issues, that, you know, race plays a part in it. And we can't ignore that, right? We can't say like, well, you know, I don't see color or like, we're all men. Like, yes, yes, right? Again, I go back to like, Many things can be true at once, right? There's a lot of more complexities to this and we have to lean into that, right? And it may cause a little discomfort for us to, you know, have these conversations uh, of race, right? Of white supremacy culture, of privilege. And, you know, I, I, I say like, if it causes you discomfort, then far often that means that's an area of growth for you, right? Why are you uncomfortable? Why do you have that discomfort? Mm -hmm. To me, I've learned that that's usually, there's a there's an opportunity, there's an area of growth for me. And that's why I'm discomfort, uh, experiencing discomfort. Do you think the white supremacy and the man box are related? Connected for I, I sure, think, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I maybe think- Maybe even almost modeled off of each other in a way. Absolutely, right? There's these systems in place, right? That, um, you know, create this, this, this sense of superiority, right? So if you're a white male, um, you do have a sense of superiority, right? You have this um, uh, definitely like, you know, systems and, and structures that are upholding privilege for you, right? Um, similar with the man box, as men, there's systems and there's structures that are upholding us, right? I'm not saying that we believe it, right? That we believe all these things that women are weak and that women um, are inferior, but we do have to recognize that these systems and structures uphold us in that, um, even as we're doing the work to dismantle it, right? Even as we're doing the work to promote gender equity. Um, and when you think of white supremacy culture, right, one of the things around white supremacy culture is the, the right to comfort, right, the right to silence and to remain invisible, right? So my experience when I'm in a room and there's white folks present and we start talking about race or ask about race, it's usually pretty silent, right? Like not a lot of white folks are jumping to to say something or to to start the conversation which is also similar when i'm in a room of all men and we start talking about patriarchy 
and sexism and that right to silence, right? That right to comfort that men have. They're like, oh, well, you know, I, I, I'm not violent in that sense. So this has nothing to do with me, right? So there's a, there's the same parallels of like disassociating and distancing from, from the issue, right? Um, so yeah, I definitely do believe that they are connected, right? Again, I don't think any, any of these things happen in isolation. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, the Live Respect curriculum. Oh, Live Respect is an amazing curriculum that we created in partnership uh, with Scholastic. And really, it was, um, you know, our way of providing this, this free resource to our communities, which is uh, these lesson plans, right, that help start these conversations uh, on high school campuses, on college campuses, with, um, you know, middle school boys, uh, young men in particular, right, like how to start these conversations around the man box. And what is the collective socialization of manhood, right? Um, so this curriculum, you can find it on our website. You can download it for free. It also comes with a toolkit uh, for how to use it on your campus. It's a great resource for coaches, for educators, um, you know, for young leaders that are really looking to have these conversations in their communities and covers everything from the man box to gender norms to um, sexual harassment, discrimination, um, and how to interrupt, right? Uh, when we see these cases of unhealthy manhood or patriarchy or sexism happening in, you know, in classrooms or in on sports teams or just in, in on campus in general. So it's a great resource. You know, we also offer trainings for the trainers on how to make sure that, you know, again, folks are using an intersectional lens uh, when they're having these conversations. And this is something that we've used with, you know, numerous community partners and schools, uh, both nationally and internationally. Um, and it's something that, you know, a lot of our partners have said is very impactful and has changed lives in terms of, you know, how those conversations are ha happening uh, in on school campuses and how a lot of this is, you know, helping us shift the culture so that young men know what consent is. We did a pre and post survey with 300 uh, high school boys, middle school and high school boys. And what we found that, you know, post or pre the curriculum, like 81% of the young men did not know how to define consent or tell us what consent was, right? So it's very alarming, um, you know, these conversations are not happening in the house, right? That we, um, as, you know, as fathers, as uncles, as men that have influence with other young men in our, in our lives, we're not having these conversations, right? Around consent, um, around what that means and how to define it. Right, uh, which explains why one in five women uh, will be sexually assaulted in college, right? Because we live in a society that tells our boys that no means try harder, right? right? That when a girl or woman tells them no, that they need to try harder, right? That they need to step up the game. And that's not the world we want to create. No, it's not. So how do these conversations go with that age group? 
Yeah, so the great thing about this is um, because we developed it with Scholastic, it's super um, user-friendly. It's formatted so that these nine uh, workshops can happen at whatever uh, rate that they want to do it in, in school, right? You can do one session uh, over you know, two class periods or all in one hour. And you can really tailor it to, you know, specific circumstances that might have happened in the school, right? A lot of our experience, we have classrooms or schools that, you know, we have these incidents with the young boys harassing um, girls, right? Or that they're, um, you know, there's incidents uh, of certain uh, harassment of young queer um, kids on campus, right? So these conversations around gender norms are really helpful, right? To talk about like, well, let's talk about who defines these roles, right? And let's talk about where we have our own influence and where we have a platform to shift that culture, right? We wanna shift that culture so that boys are, you know, promoting healthy manhood, right? And that's by changing the way that they make comments about young women, right? Or girls and the way that they interact with each other, right? Um, you know, and especially with high schoolers, right? A lot of these teachings at that point in their lives um, are already pretty much, you know, creating a foundation for how they view women and girls in the world, right? So I think um, I think you can always start sooner, right? Younger, uh, but definitely I think middle school and high school is an important uh, time period to have these conversations that again, I don't feel um, a lot of them are happening in the household. And so I think we also, as men, have to take on that role and responsibility to provide guidance, right, on how, how, they, can, how they can live more authentically as, as men, right, and how they can be part of the solution to create gender equity. What, is, what do you mean by living more authentically? What does that mean for you? It means living outside of all those constructs, right? When I mentioned the man box earlier and how it's really this, you know, you, you don't cry, you don't show weakness, you're always tough. Um, you know, it, it really, you know, I think about to like, you know, three-year-old boys, right? When we tell them to stop crying, when we tell them to man up, um, essentially what we're doing there is telling them to stop feeling, right? So we're already shutting down any kind of literacy uh, emotion, right? That they can express themselves, that they can uh, cry, that they can be vulnerable, that they can, you know, do all the things that they want to do. And so when I say live it authentically, it's really just living a fuller, richer, more free version of ourselves, right? That don't subscribe to these gender norms, right? Um, that you get to be you. And not only just be you, but that you also are contributing to this culture, right? Where we're celebrating people, not just tolerating them, you know, but like celebrating people for who they are as their whole selves, right? And their whole selves, yeah, my whole self, I do want to cry. I want to show weakness, right? I want to be able to break that cycle that men don't offer help, don't accept help. Um, you know, I want we I want to break that cycle, so. That to me is living authentically. Yeah. It reminds me of 
Um, and I, I cannot remember her name right now. Okay, I just Googled it and found the quote. It's, if you have come to help me, you are wasting your time. If you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Leela Watson, Aboriginal elder, activist, and educator from Queensland, Australia. All right, back to Josue. Um, you know, and, and we are called to men to say uh, we're aspiring allies, right? That we aspire to show up as allies because, you know, we don't we don't believe that you that we as men necessarily get to give ourselves that title, right? They're like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm an ally. It's like, well, it's all about how we show up, right? And how we're being asked to show up. And for us, it's really important that when we think about allyship, when we talk about allyship, that we are really centering the voices and the experiences of those that reside in the margins of the margins, right? And so for us, it's about, you know, I would, I would describe it as like, I'm on a one-day contract with women, right? Meaning that every single day, that contract starts anew, right? And I'm going to mess up and I'm not always going to say the right thing. And I'm not always going to show up the way I would have liked to show up or that I, you know, was expected to show up. And, and I, I, I need to accept that that's part of the journey. Right. Cause I think that also stops us, uh, as men, you know, we just want to always get it right. And want to make sure, you know, we say the right thing when we're, you know, in this practice of allyship, um, which I think, you know, again, relate, I can relate it to, you know, when folks are, when white folks are asked to show up around, you know, issues of race, right? That, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I want to make sure I get it right, right? And so, again, that that need to have it all right, and just have it all figured out is, you know, another characteristic of white supremacy culture. And so I think we need to lean into that discomfort and be like, hey, I'm an aspiring ally, but I also know that, you know, I have harm in my life, right? And I probably am going to make mistakes that may harm, right? So um, I think we have to to hold all those truths at once, right? Um, our, our, our founder, uh, Tony Porter, would describe it as we are building the plane and flying it at the same time as men, right? Because we're like one of the first generations to really be asked to show up differently, right? To really break away from all those teachings of our fathers and our grandfathers. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's the invitation, right? That's the call to men <laughs> to show up and stay. And even when it gets hard to stay at the table, right? To stay at the table. I love that you said daily contract. Um, I, I think there's this myth of like the good guy that I myself have definitely adhered to and have been lucky enough to, to have people in my life who have given me grace and, um, were comfortable enough to, uh, to tell me otherwise. And, um, I, I'm just so, so grateful for this conversation. Um, because it it is you are gonna mess up like you you just are like i uh um i thought 
I knew what it meant. I, so I'm in an interracial marriage and um, there are times even in my own marriage that I fuck up. You know, I say things that are just dumb or just completely insensitive. And there are times as a man that I'm doing that, not just as a white man, but as a, as a man that I'm doing those two things. And uh, I got to take each day as a different day and, and, and a new opportunity to do better. And I think the myth of the good guy just does so much more harm than good. And I think it's it, like you said, it's it's a characteristic of white supremacy that it defends itself because a minute you call someone a racist they're like no i'm not a racist i have you know um i have friends of color those kind of things are really not um they're they're ignoring what the lessons that are being given to you um so yeah that's a defense that leads to that discomfort right Uh, yeah or the discomfort that leads to that defense (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'm asking you to listen, right? Like, and really listen, right? Because I think a lot of the times we, we're listening with the intention to respond rather than just like, mm, all right, let me sit with what was just shared, right? That I don't always have to uh, have a response, especially when people are holding us accountable, right? Um, I think accountability, you know, people should really understand accountability as love, right? That the fact that I'm taking time to pull you aside or to talk to you is out of love, right? Because I want to be part of your growth and because your healing is connected to my healing. Yeah, thank you. Um, with that, what's been some of the greatest lessons you've gained from your work with the Call to Men? I think one of the, you know, one of the takeaways that I have found the most impactful in my life is really around having, you know, the the empathy and humility um, with men that, you know, in particular, you know, like I think as a society, I for sure was taught that certain men were dangerous, right? That certain men, you stay away from those communities, right? In particular, black and brown and indigenous men um, that have all these, you know, systems uh, working on, on, you know, that oppression, right? On these structures that oppress them. And so it's really about holding hope and healing for men, even men that I can't count on right now in this moment, right, to really be part uh, of this work, of this conversation, that I still um, know that I hope, hope, hold hope and healing for them, right? Um, and that's not always easy, right? Um, especially when we're talking about men who have harmed, right, men that harm and I think one of the things that this work has allowed me to really see or understand is that I'm working with uh, communities of men to try and hold them accountable, right? To bring accountability into into our lives. 
while at the same time recognizing that these black indigenous and brown men are also living in a society that has never taken accountability for the way that it has treated them, right? The way that they it has oppressed them, whether through these different systems of incarceration, uh, financially poor, um, because of criminalization, right? So again, <laughs> holding all those truths at once, right? Um, I think that's probably the most impactful lesson that I've taken away from this work. Uh, one more question for you. I'll have two more questions. Um, if you had a microphone to the world, what would you say? I think my message to the world is, you know, I want to, I want to live in a world where we don't tolerate people that are different from us, right? I want to live in a world that celebrates those folks, that honors them, that really centers them. Um, and I think one of the communities that we should really think about centering as a world together is Black trans women, right? If we can celebrate Black trans women and honor them, I think we all benefit. Why Black trans women? Because it's, um, you know, it's always like very unsettling that when we think about Black trans women here in the United States, right? Uh, we look at the, the statistics, right? The, the numbers that the life expectancy of Black trans women in the US is about 33, 34 years old, 33, 34 years old. And so it's, you know, how, how is it that any group of people's life expectancy here is 33, 34 years old? And like, where's the collective outrage around that? Where's the mobilization to really center them? And, you know, I wanna be in a world where they're safe and valued and honored and celebrated. Um, and I think, you know, if we can center those experiences, if we can center those voices and elevate them, that we all benefit, right? I, we all benefit to like, just like I said, our liberations tied to each other. If we can center that, uh, the community, we can center, uh, black trans women, we all benefit. At a call to men, we firmly believe that, that we would all benefit. Awesome. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should ask? Um, I don't think so. I mean, this was a good conversation. I think we, we talked through really, you know, the core of our work, right? And why it's important. Um, I think, uh, one other maybe takeaway or thing I would share is, you know, is that when we're when we're having these conversations around masculinity and, and manhood, I think it's important to remember that as men, right, that this is a new work, right? These conversations around masculinity and and gender 
have been happening for a long time, right? And the only reason that we're having it is very much attributed to the leadership of like trans and non-binary folks, right? That have always lived outside of these boxes that have always lived authentically, right? And so I think we also need to really elevate that and, and, and recognize that in these conversations that just because as men, we're having these conversations in our masculinity that we're not the we're not the gatekeepers of what masculinity is, right? Or what manhood is that we're, we're stakeholders in these conversations, but we're not the gatekeepers of it. And so I think, um, you know, the, these conversations around masculinity too are about honoring and expanding, you know, as a society that we can move beyond the binary, right? And that doesn't mean that you don't comfortably live as a, you know, as male identified person or that um, that's how you identify, right? Um, it just means that, uh, that just because other people thrive doesn't mean you lose something, right? Um, I think you mentioned this earlier, right? This idea that we're losing something because our man has been taken away from, right? It's that, it's, it's that mentality that's stuck in, in surviving. And I think we really need to move towards thriving, right? That we all thrive together. big thank you to Josue for joining us this week and everyone at A Call to Men for their incredible work to promote healthy masculinities and communities around the world. And thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Miking Change. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed making it. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button and join me again next week as we work to put a microphone to the stories that matter.